Shalom and welcome to the Vibe of the Tribe podcast from JewishBoston.com. I'm Miriam Anzavin, and I'm joined on this episode by my co-host, Dan Seligson. Hi, Dan. Hi, Miriam. For generations, the health of the American Jewish community was measured largely by one single statistic, the percentage of Jews intermarrying. The operating assumption was that for every Jew that decided to marry outside of the faith, the Jewish people would have one fewer Jewish family. If enough Jews intermarried, well, then we're screwed. That meant rabbis, synagogues, Jewish organizations, and my grandmother of blessed memory would do everything possible to save the Jewish people and find ways to encourage people to marry other Jews. For my rabbis, that meant telling me as a teenager that they wouldn't officiate my wedding unless I married a Jew. For my grandmother, it was the ever-present threat of breaking her heart. Well, hi, my name is Dan, I'm intermarried, I celebrate most Jewish holidays, and I have two daughters, both of whom consider themselves Jewish. Oh, and I have a German spouse deeply interested in Jewish ritual and practice with a strong desire to visit Israel. She has, at times in this country's recent history, even expressed an interest to make Aliyah. The reason some rabbis, Jewish organizations, and my beloved grandmother were so wrong on this issue is that intermarried Jews are hardly lost. They are contributing to Jewish life, raising their children with strong Jewish identities, and have partners who have embraced all things Jewish. Our guest today is changing the long-held erroneous understanding of intermarriage. Dr. Karen McGinnity is an educator activist who specializes in Jewish intermarriage and gender roles. Dr. McGinnity was the founding director of the Interfaith Families Jewish Engagement Program at Hebrew University. She teaches at Brandeis University and is the author of Still Jewish, A History of Women and Intermarriage in America, and Marrying Out, Jewish Men, Intermarriage, and Fatherhood. Her website, loveandtradition.org, is dedicated to opening hearts and broadening minds about intermarriage to build a fully inclusive Jewish community. Last November, Dr. McGinnity began her tenure as the interfaith specialist working towards greater diversity, equity, and inclusion at the United Synagogue of Conservative Judaism. We are so thrilled to have Dr. McGinnity here with us today on The Vibe of the Tribe. Dr. McGinnity, thank you for joining us today on The Vibe of the Tribe. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. You are an educator, an activist, specializing in studying Jewish intermarriage and gender roles. How did this area of study and activism become your focus and lead you to become the very first interfaith specialist at the United Synagogue of Conservative Judaism? Well, Miriam, how much time do you have? <laughs> because it's a, it's a long story. I'll try to um, make a long story short. I'd say approximately two decades ago, I was looking for a dissertation topic, and I did some preliminary research about intermarriage and discovered that it had mostly been studied by sociologists, demographers, and all of that literature focused on a particular point in time. Really, none of it considered gender as something that could change. And therefore, I thought, well, 
that's interesting. I was trained as a gender historian and I was interested in looking at change over time and to investigate how the meaning and experiences of intermarriage had changed over time and in what ways gender roles had influenced the family dynamics. So I began that work and ultimately the dissertation was turned into a book, which became my first book, Still Jewish, A History of Women in Intermarriage in America. But in the middle of all that, I was also myself intermarried. I became a mother and I was experiencing a renaissance, if you will, of my own Jewish identity. And I was curious, am I an anomaly? Because the literature on intermarriage had really depicted a, a fairly negative perspective, suggesting that I, I would disappear, that, that my Jewish identity wouldn't be as strong, and, and that I wouldn't raise a Jewish child. And, and none of that was true. I was, <laughs> I was deeply Jewish. In fact, I was becoming even more so. I felt my identity was cast into high relief in contrast to my, my spouse of another faith background. So during the course of my research, I discovered that, in fact, I wasn't an anomaly at all, <laughs> that many women had, in fact, experienced what I had over the course of the 20th century. And that then led to my activism because I thought if what I read was what most people were reading, then that wasn't an accurate picture. That wasn't history. It wasn't based on what had truly occurred and, and what people had experienced. And I kept working on intermarriage and gender. And then ultimately, I was invited in December 2019 to speak at the conservative biennial. And I was speaking on the afternoon plenary uh, with two wonderful rabbis, one from Boston and one from New York. And the topic was officiation, whether rabbis could or should perform interfaith marriages. And it was a hot topic <laughs> and is a hot topic. And after that experience in 2020, the United Synagogue of Conservative Judaism decided to hire its first interfaith specialist. I put my name in the hat and fortunately had the privilege of being offered the position and accepted. I read both of your books. They're great. They're riveting. They are my lived experience as someone who is in my, oh my God, my 20th year of intermarriage. Now, you discuss in depth how different denominations in Judaism have responded and reacted to the perceived challenges, quote-unquote challenges, of intermarriage throughout the 20th century. And with this role that you're now in, you're a catalyst in this history. What has been the historical context for the United Synagogue of Conservative Judaism to reach the point of having an interfaith specialist? Thank you so much for that question in particular, because I think that the historical narrative and context are extremely important to understand where the conservative movement was and, and where it is and where it may go. Something that I have come to better understand, and I say that because when I was doing my research, I was looking at it from the outside, if you will. I wasn't working from within the movement. And now that I am working in the conservative movement, I see how there's been this trajectory of incremental but steady change. And the kind of MO or the really lived conservative Judaism is one that grapples with or otherwise lived in between 
tradition and change. That has been illustrated by changes that began to be made specifically in 1983 with accounting for the role of women in Judaism, ordaining women rabbis, which hadn't been done previously. And then in 1998, with adding the names of the matriarchs, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah to the patriarchs uh, in the prayer book. And then in early 2000s, specifically 2006, there was a focus on addressing the LGBTQ population. And both the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York and the Ziegler School of Rabbinic Studies in Los Angeles changed their policies to accept and ordain gay rabbinical students. So those were important changes that was followed by the conservative movement's affirmation of the validity of same-sex marriages in 2012. The most recent was in 2017 that had some play in the media, which was to allow people of other faiths to become members. That, I think, is something that was really going on anyway in congregations, right? There was de facto membership in the sense that the reality was that partners of other faith backgrounds were going with their partners, their spouses, their family members to synagogue, but they weren't recognized as members. So then it became de jour membership, if you will. It became a policy that, that they could now be members. And then leading us to much closer to the present, my colleague, Rabbi Josh Rabin, who is now the director of teen engagement, leading both United Synagogue Youth, USY, and the Nativ program in Israel, he began offering programming for congregations to better support interfaith couples and families, which was more than anything had been done before. However, he also had many other responsibilities. And so it wasn't until 2020 that USCJ decided to. Uh, make a commitment to hire an interfaith specialist, someone with expertise in this particular area who could focus solely on this work and also on the broader diversity, equity, and inclusion space. Well, I think the fact that you have this position is very exciting. I can say growing up in a town with a very large and large membership conservative synagogue and having been to several conservative synagogues when synagogue shopping, if you will, I didn't feel particularly welcome being a member of an interfaith family up until maybe very recently. That's what's exciting to me about you in this position, because it signals to me that there has been a shift and it might be a gradual shift. It might be, uh, I don't know how long a shift like this takes. What is the most exciting aspect to you about this work? And I guess I just mentioned the word gradual, but maybe that's related. What's the biggest challenge in this space? The most exciting is the shift itself and the potential for real uh, lasting change. And not just within USCJ and the congregations we serve, but really across all of our partner organizations and institutions. So the whole conservative movement. I think that what I've been discovering as I am in communication with congregations and having a lot of deep, meaningful conversations with conservative rabbis, which is truly a privilege to, to work with synagogue leaders, is that congregations want to change. Rabbis want to change the culture in their communities to one that is appealing to interfaith couples and families. So 
I, I also, I have to say, I have fabulous colleagues. <laughs> uh, there's a whole team of synagogue leaders, and it's wonderful to be on that team. So I'm excited about that. Specifically, everyone who I'm working with cares so deeply about Judaism and about the Jewish community. It is not an academic topic. It is real daily life. And to address the challenge issue is that I am hypersensitive. I am extremely aware that it is a challenge to forge a way forward that will be as appealing to as many people as possible and as unappealing to as few people as possible with the understanding that you cannot make everyone happy all of the time. But if we can make more people happy more of the time, we'll be doing a much better job, which is what we need to do. There's a quote from one of your books that really encapsulates for me the historic, quote unquote, establishment. I know those who are listening may not see this, but I'm using uh, quote marks, establishment opinion about intermarriage. And this quote from your book goes thusly, next to the fate of Israel, continuity is the number one concern in the organized Jewish community and has been for at least the last two decades. Two assumptions color these concerns that an intermarried Jew becomes fully assimilated into the majority Christian population, religion, and culture, and that an intermarried Jew will not raise Jewish children. That's the end of your quote. What does the current research really indicate about these assumptions? Well, fortunately, (laughs) current research uh, indicates that there are many more ways to be and do Jewish than earlier research suggested. And I have to add that that earlier research, and it now I think is better understood to span not just a a couple decades or a quarter century, but a full half century, was one that was truly controlled by social scientists and philanthropists who created a continuity crisis. And I'm, for those who are listening, not watching, I'm using my fingers to make quote marks. And that was something that was born out of fear and was also one that could only imagine Jewish life and identity according to the way that they understood it, which was an entirely Ashkenormative framework and didn't account for so many other kinds of people. Jewish people and their loved ones, and didn't account for the ways in which they were and are doing and being Jewish. Those studies that failed to ask questions about ethnicity and race were inherently biased. What the current research does is illustrate the fact that someone can and does (laughs) intermarry, and not only are they still Jewish, as I am and many others, Jewish women and Jewish men, but that they can, in fact, become more Jewish, not according to whatever the the frameworks were before, but according to the ways in which they are expressing their Judaism, the ways in which they are invested in Jewish learning, in participating in the Jewish community, and in the cases where they choose to have children, in raising Jewish children, specifically by educating them Jewishly. Um, not counting on descent or bloodline to transmit Jewish identity. For the longest time, it seems like this benchmark of intermarriage rates was the only one really being paid attention to was that above all. In your opinion, what other benchmarks should we be using not 
connected to intermarriage that are perhaps actually better indicators of personal engagement in Jewish life? That's a terrific question, Miriam. Thank you for it. I think that, first of all, it's really important to ask people, how are they Jewish? Rather than how Jewish are they? To understand the ways in which they are finding meaning in Judaism and in in living Jewishly. I think doing Jewish is a better indicator. And people are engaging in Jewish learning, whether it's alongside one's preschool age child, learning uh, things that perhaps one didn't have the benefit of learning oneself, to adult ed programs across the, the full spectrum of Jewish learning and real different kinds of engagement. Count Jewish yoga in there. There's so many different ways of doing and being, participating in the Jewish community and, and attending Jewish events, listening to Jewish speakers, Jewish music, celebrating Shabbat in unique ways, and baking challah is something that maybe that wasn't counted before, but I certainly would count that and, and think it can be extremely meaningful for people who have those skills. Volunteering for organizations like Family Table and other food pantries or shelters, studying Jewish history, languages, and of course, you know, going to Israel, being interested in learning about Israel and working for social and racial justice. People can express their Jewish identities in many, many different ways. The other piece of that, and that ties in with the last question as well, is the intersections of aspects of one's identity and understanding the fact that someone can intermarry and that those children or those families can be Asian and Jewish or Jew-Asian as is the title of a, a book by a couple of my fun colleagues, Black and Jewish, Latino and Jewish. It's not an either or. It's really a both and. One of the most amazing aspects for me of researching this conversation with you and reading your books is how much the experience of intermarriage is informed by gender. And just looking at the moment at heterosexual couples, because I know that was the area um, of your research and your study. What are some of the key differences you have found in interfaith relationships between when the, the male is Jewish and when the woman is Jewish? So I found multiple differences, and they're each important in their own ways, and I think we can learn a lot from them. The first is how Jewish men responded to a rabbi if the rabbi explained that she or he was not willing or able to perform the marriage. In the case of Jewish men, the reaction was more of a knee-jerk, I'm done with Judaism. As one man said regarding the eight-minute conversation he had with his conservative rabbi, that was the end of me being a conservative Jew. Whereas with women, it was a less reactionary and more of a process in, in the sense that if they were told no by one rabbi, they would keep asking other rabbis until they found one that would say yes. That's one difference. Uh, another difference is in who Jewish women and Jewish men married. Jewish women often married men of little to no faith, making interfaith misnomer. It was really more faith and faithless, whereas Jewish men often married women of other faith backgrounds who had a strong faith identity, who were invested in that religion, who had gone to mass on a weekly basis when they were growing up, for example. 
And I have to say, there are, of course, exceptions to this. And I had a wonderful experience earlier this week with uh, a family in which a, a conservative Jewish woman married uh, a, a man who is a first-generation immigrant from Ghana and was raised in an evangelical Christian family. And together, they both have extremely strong faith. But I, I would say, based on my own research, that's more the exception as far as intermarried Jewish women are concerned. Another very important variable for the Jewish community to understand is that intermarried men often shifted denominations. So they would migrate to a branch of Judaism that was more inclusive, where they felt comfortable, where their children would be recognized as Jews, and where they felt like they, they counted, where they did not have to feel like they were, quote, again, the fingers, quote, bad Jews, that they could celebrate being Jewish with their families. Women did not migrate. They stayed in the branch of Judaism in which they were raised. And related to that, I think, is that conversion is a highly gendered phenomenon. Many more women of other faith backgrounds who marry Jewish men will consider choosing Judaism either before or after they get married than do the husbands of intermarried Jewish women. Intermarried Jewish men's wives convert to Judaism more frequently than intermarried Jewish women's husbands. A couple last differences. One was that while becoming a parent, if they did so, was a strong influence on both intermarried Jewish women and intermarried Jewish men, it was a stronger influence on women in terms of what they then did to proactively transmit Judaism to their children. And the reality, and this ties in with the sixth and last difference I can share with you, is that it's harder to be an intermarried Jewish man than to be an intermarried Jewish woman. And that is because of two things primarily. One, because of the lack of consensus about Jewish descent and who is a Jew. And two, because of the American construction of gender that puts the responsibility for domestic religion, for childcare, child rearing on women's shoulders rather than men's shoulders. So to see men doing Jewish things with their children, which they do, but then, then we're talking about the, quote, involved father, right? But there's no such thing as the involved mother. Mother's just mother. So it is harder <laughs> to be an intermarried Jewish man raising Jewish children. Dan, tell us about that. In addition to already setting a record in the first 20 minutes for use of air quotes, like <laughs> I'm nodding like a bobblehead for God's sakes. I'm like, uh -huh, uh -huh, because I am an, an intermarried Jewish man. And, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about my personal experience later, but so many things that you said just now resonated with me. I was that guy who had a 25 minute argument with two reform rabbis when I was 18 years old and dating a Jew, very seriously dating a Jew, and being told by them that, you know, it, they'd be thrilled to marry me as long as I married someone Jewish. And I flipped out on them. And I never even considered at that point dating a non-Jew. I just figured I'd date a person that I was interested in. We had a big fight. Suffice to say, I got to college and decided I would not be involved Jewishly because I was still pissed off at my rabbis. End of that for a while. But I want to flash forward to the present day because I have some good things to say about, uh, about my interfaith relationship. And I found, particularly during the pandemic, that 
my spouse, who is German, 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 two German parents who live outside of the city of Bonn in, in Germany. I spend, you know, well, in a normal year, a couple weeks a year in Germany, like my second home, oddly enough. My spouse's interest in Jewish ritual really spiked. We started lighting Shabbat candles every Friday because CJP was doing online candle lighting not services, but sort of encounters or something. We've talked a lot about Jewish holidays, including Purim, Simchat Torah, like just, you know, getting deep into the calendar, not just the high holidays and, and Hanukkah. We led our own Seder. We participated in other Jewish rituals and Jewish learning online. And no joke, she was seriously riveted by all three hours of a bar mitzvah that we watched over Zoom that took place at a local synagogue. It startled me. Took, you know, it took me by surprise as much as anyone. To what extent did your research find that non-Jewish partners were not only accepting or embracing Jewish life, but in my case, in some ways, driving Jewish life? Definitely found that to a large extent. And so you have, you have many brothers Dan, who have similar experiences in the sense that the women they married became enraptured with and in love with Judaism and truly focused on learning everything that they could. And I think that relates to the fact that if they were going to do something, if they were going to raise Jewish children or have a Jewish family or a Jewish home, they were really going to do it. You know, they were not going to be satisfied with just saying it, with the words, that it needed to incorporate the behaviors and therefore the learning that was part of that in order to then do the act it, to walk the walk and not just talk the talk. And I think that these women who, women of other faith backgrounds, your beloved, have historically been portrayed in a light that they don't deserve whatsoever. I think it's so important to, A, give a shout out <laughs> to all of the, the <laughs> folks who have fallen in love with and married Jewish partners and who are making challah or who are riveted to a three-hour Zoom bar bat mitzvah and who are encouraging their children to, to study. Women like Dan's wife are women of valor and should be recognized, acknowledged, appreciated, validated, blessed by the rabbi, by the clergy, from the bima, to say thank you for joining our people in whatever that looks like, and for all that you're doing to have a Jewish home, and if you have children, to, to be raising Jewish children. I think also that my research showed that women who married Jewish men were looking for not only an identity for themselves, but a homogeneous family identity. That it was not about just them personally, but about how their family would identify religiously. And the men didn't want responsibility for whether their wives chose to officially become Jewish on their own shoulders because they wanted it to be their wife's decision and, and not to be pressured by a rabbi or for the men to pressure their wives. They didn't want to do that. And it's understandable. And women who either chose Judaism before getting married or after, in some cases, after having a couple children and seeing their children on the bima and then realizing they were doing Jewish and then wanted to be Jewish officially. And so, yeah, your wife has many sisters who have had similar experiences. 
Let's talk about one of her possible sisters who I'm a big fan of. In, in this new administration, we have Vice President Kamala Harris and second gentleman Doug Emhoff, who is Jewish. Do you think that their example will impact or change perceptions of intermarriage, or maybe it already is, in different segments of the American Jewish community? I certainly hope so. I hope that their example will influence perceptions of intermarriage. There was, as you probably saw, you heard the buzz about Doug's children calling Kamala Mamala. Yes. And, um, <laughs> and, and <laughs> you know, it's fun fodder, and I would need to, to talk with them and really get to know them to understand the depth of that meaning for them. I think, though, in some ways, it th that particular combination kind of perpetuates the gender history of Jewish men marrying into the upper echelons of American society, going back to Ed Schlossberg marrying Caroline Kennedy, and then more recently, the Kushner brothers marrying high-profile women of other faith backgrounds who became Orthodox Jewish women. And so, Doug, I, I think that Doug and Kamala have the potential to, if they choose to, say, hey, we're an interfaith, intermarried couple, and this is how we live our lives. And Doug is still Jewish, and we're also celebrating Kamala's Indian culture. I think that it remains to be seen in the extent to which it influences perceptions. I think if the if roles were reversed, in other words, if it was Kamala who was the Jew in the partnership, so if we had the first Jew of color vice president, okay. Baruch Hashem, may we soon see this. Indeed. Betrat Hashem, God's help. I think that we would have more influence because then there would be more of a spotlight on the reality of the more current research that illustrates that there are at least 12% of Jews of color in America. So, you know, and at least maybe it's 14%, it could be 50. So what I'm saying is it's a growing population and it, it's one that has not been fully recognized. And even in the past couple of years, it's getting more attention, but in so many um, Jewish spaces doesn't have the recognition that it could if the VP was a Jew of color with partner of another faith. That's fascinating to think about. And I have often thought about what if it were flipped? There would be the whole thing about having a Jewish vice president, first of all, which would be uh, kind a of Jewish a Jewish female you know. <laughs> uh, woman of color, Jew of color. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it, I, it would be. I can't wait for that day. Yeah, I want to move to a tangential issue because we have not said the A word yet, anti-Semitism. And I want to mention something that you wrote in Still Jewish. You wrote anti-Semitism, which some historians believe deterred Gentiles from marrying Jews may have actually influenced some women's decisions to marry non-Jewish men. Is this a thing now? Anti-Semitism has been on the rise consistently, so anti-Semitism certainly hasn't gone away. But has this concept continued to this day, or is this a relic of the distant past? It's a relic of the not-so-distant past. It was really leading up to... World War II and in the immediate post-war years, when Jews were, frankly, less secure in America than we are now. And despite the current rise in anti-Semitism, it isn't something that is influencing marital decisions. There isn't the same incentive, and it wouldn't be as it was 
in the mid 20th century, early and mid 20th century, a way to marry into the mainstream, to quote unquote, escape one's Jewish family, neighborhood, background. Another way of looking at it has to do with the fact that the rates of intermarriage accelerated, increased in the latter part of the 20th century and remain high now. That occurred prior to anti-Semitism rearing its ugly head, becoming more visible in the second decade of the 21st century. Now, you mentioned some milestones for conservative Judaism that were fairly recent when it comes to intermarriage. And when I think about intermarriage and my own life and how intermarriage has become way more accepted than it was even when I first got married, I think about how it has tracked my own life in some way. You know, I, I mentioned this argument I had with my rabbis, but flash forward to about nine years after I got married, I go to see with my wife, we have a consultation with her OBGYN because we have decided that we're going to try to have a child. And she looks at me because she knows I'm Jewish. We filled out the form that said we, we need to take that, that Ashkenazi test. And she said, oh, so I guess uh, shikses aren't just for practice. Ha ha ha. Like it was a hilarious thing to say to a couple that's sitting there making a very momentous decision about their lives. A little bit later on, I um, was synagogue shopping. I've not completed synagogue shopping, but... He's still shopping. I'm still shopping. I, I love shopping. <laughs> you know, it's something you don't get to do so much these days. And I met with a conservative rabbi who said to me, we are so welcoming of interfaith families in this congregation. We have interfaith members on our board. What we ask is that you take your children to the mikvah and agree to not celebrate any other holidays besides Jewish holidays at home. And I said, that's not what I was bargaining for. And then much more recently, I was talking to a colleague at CJP who is from the Orthodox community. And we were talking about intermarriage and he said, you know, nobody cares if a man intermarries. It doesn't affect the numbers. Really, no one cares about your intermarriage. I said, oh, fascinating. So long story short, I felt this push-pull throughout my, my life as an intermarried person, from acceptance to subtle ways of pushing me away. I guess the larger point is, this is my own personal story, but how would you describe the progress writ large of intermarriage and acceptance in organized Jewish life? Well, before I do that, I want to offer you and your beloved a heartfelt apology on behalf of the Jewish community. I walk a fine line in the sense that I'm both a scholar and an activist, and I can see things from both sides. I understand the reasons that rabbis will say what they say or do what they do. I have zero tolerance for the remark that was made by that clinician. It comes from a kind of emotional baggage that many Jews carry with them, I think, which is part of what we need to eliminate because it is so incredibly hurtful and rude. <laughs> and to just say again, your wife is a woman of valor. And if someone wants to modify the quote, shiksas are for practice, they're not, they're for keeps. And kudos to those who are self-identifying as such and reclaiming the term and, and turning it into something that, that they find meaningful. And I'm thinking specifically of one who developed a cookbook, I think, called The Shiksa in the Kitchen. And, you know, <laughs> I, I think, but, but, but that is particular and a very personal decision. I think James Baldwin once wrote that not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. And I think 
it is extremely important for the Jewish community, for all of our branches and movements to address the hurt that we've caused and the anger and not just say, oh, get over it. No, you don't just get over it. You process it and you hold people accountable. And hence, I offer that that apology. I do think that there's been tremendous progress, particularly over the past 30 plus years. I think that there are some amazing organizations doing incredible work. That's a shout out to 18 Doors, formerly Interfaith Family. And there's so many organizations doing work. I, I'm hesitant to, to mention them and then inadvertently exclude anyone. But Judaism Your Way is a wonderful one as well. And then there are there are congregations that are doing incredible work that isn't like necessarily interfaith specific. Like for example, I had a wonderful conversation recently with the director of the mikvah at Addis Israel in DC. There they aren't telling Jewish men that they can belong if they dunk their children. What they're doing is inviting anyone and everyone who lives in a Jewish family to immerse if that's something that they would like to do and that would be meaningful to them. Not necessarily related to a conversion process. So that's like really reinventing the whole idea of ritual and of immersion. And Ikar in, in Los Angeles, there's so many of them. But at the same time, there are contingencies of folks who would still say what you heard, which is that in order to belong, in order to be part of the community, you effectively have to excise anything that smacks of something other than Jewishness or Judaism. And I think it's incredibly short-sighted because it doesn't take into account that people are um, multifaceted and have multifaceted families and lives. And that having something of another faith or cultural background in one's orbit, in one's family, in, in one's home, does not dilute one's Jewishness or the strength of one's Jewish commitments or family. And in fact, you know, quite the opposite, if one is honoring and if one is teaching one's children to honor the parent of another faith background or the, the in-laws, the grandparents of another faith background, then in fact, we're doing what we should be doing according to the Torah with Yitro and Moses and looking at that in-law relationship and saying, Moses actually learned a lot from his father-in-law of another faith background. And how about we think about the importance of treating everyone with the, the respect that they deserve and not just expecting that they'd not try to convert us, which was an ongoing fear that anyone or anything that was Christian or related to a different religion would somehow impair Judaism and the Jewish community. And, and that's just not the case. So there's still quite a bit of work to open hearts and broaden minds and to change the culture inside synagogue walls, inside doctor's offices, and well beyond so that there's a real appreciation for both the Jewish diversity in our midst. And that's even within conservative Judaism, there's a tremendous amount of Jewish pluralism within conservative Judaism. And then beyond, there's so much Jewish diversity that we need to better appreciate in order to then do a much better job at being a fully inclusive community. Well, thank you. I mean, the research that you've done, the books you've written, and the current job you're in, you are really making a difference in this space. You shouldn't be apologizing to anyone. You are, I, I am thanking you for what you're doing. 
So we've talked about how the conservative movement is changing on this issue. And there's a wonderful quote by a personal hero of mine, Blue Greenberg, among many other things. She's the founder of the Jewish Orthodox Feminist Alliance. And I know you also have this quote uh, in your email signature, which is one reason it comes to mind. And the quote is, where there is a rabbinic will, there is a halachic way. Halacha refers to Jewish law and provides the guidelines and boundaries for every aspect of Jewish life, especially for people who identify as orthodox or observant. And what Blue Greenberg means here is if orthodox rabbis have the will to find a way to do something within the boundaries of halacha, they can't. They just have to have the will to do it and they can make that change. For example, even a few years ago, it would have been unthinkable to have a woman receive orthodox micha, orthodox ordination, and yet it's actually starting to happen albeit very slowly and with caution and careful chosen titles, very carefully. But no one would have ever thought, oh, this is in the cards for orthodox ordination for women. But things do change. Will there be, in in your thinking, one day enough rabbinic will to find a halachic way forward for intermarriage for those for whom halacha is a guiding principle? That, Miriam, is the million-dollar question. I believe so. I love that quote, as you know. And through the many conversations that I'm having now with rabbis and through the recognition that Jews who marry people of other faith backgrounds are, in fact, desiring a place in the Jewish community where they can be and their families can be their whole selves. I believe that there is like a a, a growing whether it's a grassroots movement and discussions um, among um, Jewish leadership, some of which I'm privy to, some of which I'm not, but a recognition of the reality that, as you said, there has been constant change. The reality that we think things can't be, and then lo and behold, they can. Everything is unprecedented until it happens, and then it's yesterday's news. The halachic process, though, is extremely important. And now I'm speaking with my USCJ hat on in particular. I deeply appreciate and respect the need for that process. And it is a legal, it is a Jewish legal one. And it is one that is possible when really knowledgeable, skilled halachists come together and look at Jewish law and figure out okay, well, we made those changes based on these pieces of text before. What can we do with the will to do it to find the halachic way? I think it's a matter of time, frankly. I think the desire is there. I think the desire is growing. And it absolutely needs that process, though. I think sometimes people have the misconception that a conservative organization like USCJ or the movement or what it can like make a, just flip a switch, make a decision, change the policy. That's not how it works. Uh, the conservative movement is one that truly does balance tradition and change. And so to balance that, there needs to be that halachic, deep, thoughtful, careful process. And hopefully then we'll get there and get there in such a way that as many rabbi colleagues as possible are, are comfortable with the outcome and have the autonomy to make decisions that they're comfortable with for their particular congregations, that it's not a cookie cutter kind of, kind of answer. 
how do we help dismantle the painful narrative, which is not supported by research, as we have discussed today, that the existence of interfaith families is destroying Judaism and the Jewish people? How do those of us who are not currently in interfaith relationships be allies in this struggle? First of all, thank you for wanting to be allies. And second, the most important way to dismantle it and to acknowledge that intermarriage is an opportunity is to understand that what has occurred in the past has really been a kind of self-defeating, shooting ourselves in the foot approach that A, has not deterred anyone from marrying who they fell in love with, and B, has only alienated marginalized and disenfranchised Jews who would otherwise be involved in the Jewish community and belonging to congregations and sending their children to Jewish day schools or supplemental Jewish education and volunteering and so on and so forth. So what we need to do is is pivot and dismantle that painful narrative by writing a positive narrative that embraces the opportunity and recognizes that what my mother taught me was true. You do <laughs> um, attract and appeal to more people with honey than with vinegar. It's very simple. And to acknowledge that someone like Dan's wife, who was, you know, so interested and so riveted, it's because Judaism is amazing. And we shouldn't be <laughs> afraid that by letting people in, that somehow it's going to take away from when in fact we will be sharing. We don't have to just keep it for ourselves. (laughs) We are meant to be the light upon nations, right? So to fully do that is to recognize that it's for everyone. And if it's for everyone, then we need to be inclusive of everyone. And that by doing that, we will effectively rewrite the narrative, which has already begun, but we you know, need to keep moving in that direction and to call out people when they say something like what was said to Dan and to educate them about why not only is that incredibly inappropriate, but it's unacceptable. Expanding on what you were just saying, how do we become more welcoming and inclusive in our own individual Jewish communities, workplaces, and our families? We look to our Jewish values and we live them. We look to our Jewish texts. We fully embrace B'Tselem Elohim in God's image. And we take that as a sacred responsibility so that we are acknowledging that everyone is created in God's image, no exceptions. And we treat them that way, just as we would like to be treated. And we ask, what is it? that people want and need so that we can then provide it. We need to listen carefully rather than the experience that you had welcome now change, right? We need to say, invite people to, to participate. People who have been welcomed for years haven't necessarily felt like they belonged. There's a difference between being welcomed and being invited to truly belong and not asked to change in order to belong. From your experience and your research, what advice would you give to interfaith couples who are trying to navigate identity and community and all of these tricky issues? First, I would say that you are not alone. (laughs) 
there are many people who are navigating that that journey, that it is a journey and that life is complicated, marriage is complicated, love relationships are complicated. And, and this isn't particular to interfaith either. This is the reality that you know, Jewish, Jewish marriages are complicated. Yeah. Christian marriages are, I mean, humans are complicated. So folks are not alone to understand that the past of stigmatization and marginalization is not the present, nor um, does it dictate the future, that change is happening. And to please, please reach out to us, us who are working in these inclusive spaces, who are doing this this work to change the narrative and to to look at halakha, to to find ways to be more inclusive. And I, I would encourage being outspoken about, about who you are and the fact that you, interfaith couples and, and who are trying to navigate, have as much right to experience the beauty and, and the wisdom of Judaism and to partake in and participate in the Jewish community as everyone else. You're here and you're here to stay. And please feel welcome to reach out to me personally via my website, loveandtradition.org or at United Synagogue. And I, I would love to help you on your journey. Well, Dr. McGinnity, thank you again for doing this incredible work. And thank you for joining us today on The Vibe of the Tribe to tell us all about it. It was a privilege and a pleasure. And I'm sending positive vibes out into the universe <laughs> to you and Miriam and Jesse uh, in production and to everyone and anyone listening and everyone and anyone who is not listening to stay safe and be well. And thank you. Thank you to Dr. McGinnity for joining us. Thank you to our editor, Jesse Ulrich. Thank you to everyone out there for listening. If you liked this episode, be sure to rate and review the vibe of the tribe wherever you listen to pods and follow at Jewish Boston on social media. Stay safe, wear a mask, and remember that inclusion is a Jewish value.